Okay, welcome to another edition of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I am Todd Coons. And I am Craig Higgins. Here we are. Uh, today, as promised, we are watching another one of Wes, Cra- Wes Craven's flicks uh, called Nightmare on Elm Street. Probably his uh, the one that really shot him into the stratosphere. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a modern classic of sorts. Yeah, how long had it been since you'd seen this? Since I'd seen this? You know, I don't know. I, when we sat down to watch it on, on DVD, I thought, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever sat down and, and popped in the DVD and watched it from start to finish. It's one of those things you catch on TV every once in a while, and it's so familiar to me. I've seen it, I don't even know, probably hundreds, literally hundreds of times uh, at this point. But it's been a while, and to sit down and watch it from start to finish was kind of nice. Uh, I'd kind of forgotten that I really appreciated the, the whole film in its entirety. This movie was <laughs> like a cultural touchstone. I mean, when it came off, it was it was huge. I mean, I think it made back its budget, which was relatively modest, like within the first weekend. Um, and it's known as uh, the, the, basically the movie that put New Line on the That's right. Map, right? Yeah, the house that Freddie built. Yeah, they were they were basically getting ready to declare bankruptcy right. right when this movie came out. They'd only made one other movie before, yep. so it was you know Robert Shea, uh, the producer, and his wife is actually in the movie as yep. a school teacher. Uh, and then this movie came out, and it just it was a huge hit. And I mean, I remember, I don't remember when this movie came out, um, but I was old enough to remember when the second movie was being advertised. I would go with my dad to the video store, and we'd see these big posters for Freddy, um, Fred, for Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a scarred guy and all that. And I was really curious about it, but it was when the Dream Master came out, the third one, that was just huge. It was all over the place. I just remember that this was one of those movies that I was young enough. My parents were pretty liberal in letting us watch whatever we wanted to. I mean, we were little kids watching, you know, like Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and stuff. So they weren't real uh, strict about what we could watch. But this was one of those that I wasn't supposed to watch. Uh-huh. Um, but my dad had it uh, on VHS somehow. Oh, yeah? Um, and it was one of those that I remember, you know, sneaking uh, around and watching kind of in clips. And uh, watching it again, there were these iconic scenes that I remember and and maybe not so much iconic, but I, I remember vividly being a kid and that scene where uh, early in the film where you, where we really kind of first see Freddy for the first time and uh, he just does this gag where he, he chops a couple of his fingers off and this, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, it doesn't look like blood. It, it looks, you know, very much like a practical effect. But that just stuck with me as a little kid. That was something that really creeped me out. <laughs> And there are so many of those moments throughout that just have stayed with me till now. Yeah, it's really weird. You know, we should get into that because I noticed that was this sort of this weird theme of this self-mutilation. I don't know what to make of it. But, um, you know, obviously Nancy is this girl who's, uh, when it starts out with this great intro where her, her friend Tina yeah. actually is, is clearly going through this dream. This is right after we see the glove being put together sure, by his yeah. hands. And then uh, and then it really just jumps right into it. Uh, Tina has this dream. She's cornered by Freddy. Um, she meets up with her friend Nancy, who's really the star of the film, played by Heather Langenkamp. And, uh, and her friends, I mean, just really establishes immediately this sort of foursome. Um, with these two, Tina's boyfriend Rod, right? Uh, something like that. And he was, <laughs> yeah, Rod, who comes and goes pretty quickly. Who's kind of the jerk of the group. The tough guy, yeah. you know, kind of the bad boy of the of the group. I had a heart on this morning when I woke up, Tina. Had your name written all over it. There's four letters in my name, Rod. How could there be room on your joint for four letters? <laughs> and then uh, Glenn, who is uh, sort of uh, the guy who lives across the street from yeah, Nancy. Yeah, the, the nice boy. Yeah. A and... nice, young, pretty Johnny Depp. You know what's <clears> interesting? <throat> what, I, what I remembered about this movie and what I 
what I saw again now seeing it, it even it's been a while since I've seen it too were different Nancy is not she's not the Jamie Lee Curtis of this film you know right. what I mean? Like, when you look at Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, she's sort of the sweet, innocent girl. She's sort of, you you imagine she's not going to curse, you know, she's not yeah. going to whatever. The Nancy in this movie is like, she's a spunky gal. Sure, yeah, she's got an edge to her. I mean, she, you know, she wears the pretty pink cardigans, and uh, she's got her hair, you know, nicely permed and whatnot, but uh, she's got an edge to her, too. She's not afraid to tell Freddie to fuck off or her mom or whoever else might <laughs> need being told that. Yeah, and I guess Wes Craven... Is this something he does often, is take the female... It's not really his signature, is it? Sort of taking a strong female protagonist? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, you know, there was the the trend of the final girl with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and, and the other slashers that followed this. And to some extent, it you know, it, it follows that same formula. It's a pretty simple formula, really. It's it's the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's something else that I have to think about when watching the, the first film again, is this was before we knew. You know, Freddy's so iconic now. I mean, he's a character in his own right you know he exists as a character really outside of these films you know a lot of kids these days probably know the character and maybe have never seen any of the movies mm-hmm. uh, but when this movie came out you know we didn't know who this character was we didn't know what the rules were uh, and I think that that probably made it a lot scarier you know as, as the sequels went along, Freddy came more kind of a clown of, of sorts, yeah. which, which was still fun uh, uh-huh. in its own way, but uh, here he's really, you know, got that dark edge. You don't, you don't know what to expect, and he poses a real threat. And that's sort of the Freddy I grew up with, was that clownish Freddy, Freddy you know? Yeah. He's always making these cute cracks and funny things. You get a couple cracks in this movie, but by and large, this is a pretty terrifying guy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I read that uh, initially Craven's idea for Freddy was was pretty standard. I mean, he wanted him to be the kind of silent killer uh, in the same vein as Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees. And really, if you pay attention, first of all, Freddy only gets about seven minutes, I think, I read of screen time in the whole film. Yeah. Uh, he he doesn't say much. I mean, he's really quippy uh, in the sequels, but that's really a product of the sequels, and Craven really didn't have very much to do with that. So yeah. uh, the character kind of took on a life of his own, even beyond what Craven had envisioned. Yeah, the seeds of that of that humorous guy are still there, definitely. Yeah. Hey, Nancy. No running in the hallway. In fact, I think he really wanted this movie to end differently. I think he did. He wanted it to have a happy ending. That's right. Yeah, I, uh, he wanted it to. You know, with with at the end of the film, you know, Nancy realizes what it's going to take to deprive Freddie of his power, and and she does that, and that's kind of where uh, Craven wanted it to end on, on a happy note. Robert Shea, thinking of uh, of of money and and all that, the producer wanted yeah wanted the potential for sequels, and so he wanted a, a more ambiguous ending, and apparently they shot several endings. They shot uh, Craven's vision, they shot Shay's vision, and then they shot a couple of scenes that were kind of a compromise, and one of those is what we ended up with. And I guess, uh, I've, I've heard that those alternate uh, endings are available. You can watch them on YouTube. I haven't seen them. No, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, it, it, he, Craven was actually very much against the idea of any sequels at all, uh, and wasn't pleased that they decided to continue on with the franchise, um, and really distance himself from it a lot until New 
nightmare. Yeah, which which was a great take on it. He gets yeah. very meta. He can really kind of t- talk about right about that. Well, and people really kind of uh, credit Craven with the whole meta horror phenomenon with with Scream. But really, he had kind of dabbled in that with New Nightmare just a couple of years before. Oh yeah, um, New Nightmare is is one of my. It may be my favorite in the franchise. I just think it's so creative. Oh yeah, um, and such a great return to its roots, uh, and and really made Freddy scary again, which was a nice way to kind of cap off the series. You know, we're gonna have to watch New Nightmare again because I I agree. I I would almost put New Nightmare above this movie. You know, this movie, as far as modern sensibilities go, mm-hmm. again, I don't think kind of like we said about um, about the West Craven movie we watched last time. Right, People Under the Stairs. Um, it wouldn't really be made today in the same way you mentioned freddie only had like seven minutes of screen Mm -hmm. time you know Mm -hmm. and the other thing that was really interesting to me is is once a couple people get killed off rod well of course tina gets killed right um in that really iconic scene where she's dragged up the wall and yeah amazing scene with the the rotating room and it's it's awesome and that was the that was the scene that scared the heck out of me as a kid i mean that was the one that had the most impact on me It it was just horrible of course it has that sort of sexual overtone to it too you know and when you talk about rules that's you know they're the ones who have sex for the first time right I actually thought it was really interesting as um, Tina and her boyfriend Rod are having sex upstairs and Johnny Depp's character um, Glenn right is downstairs Uh and he's kind of having to hear it and listen to it because Heather's um, Heather Lane Uh Nancy yeah (laughs) She doesn't want to have anything to do, you know, she's clearly got, the, that's that morality part of her. <laughs> right, I think uh, Johnny Depp, his line is, Morality sucks. Morality sucks, right? Isn't that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it was like so blatant and obvious that you have to forget, I mean, if this had been made after Scream, that kind of line would never have right, flown. Because right. it's like, oh, come on, that's so silly. But in that case, you know, it was really setting up the rules, as you said. The, the, she dies, and of course they think that it's Rod who killed her. So Rod gets put into jail, and Rod gets strung up. Right. Then, after about that point, the movie really, I hesitate to say, kind of has a lull. There's a lot of sort of tense stuff, but not a lot of reality happening. Nancy has her dreams in the school, and she's kind of tormented a little bit by Freddy. So there's that. But then I would say for a good maybe twenty minutes, it's yeah. it's a lot of just the drama of yeah. the family and her trying to stay awake and what sure. that entails, and the mother saying, "Oh, you shouldn't be doing this," and father coming in, and then her meeting in the park with her friend. I mean, yeah, and you and they've got to build in the exposition so that we know the backstory of what's going on, which just <laughs> is very convenient. You know, the that the story is. Uh, uh, easily told by by her mother the backstory. You know, she saved these artifacts from this horrifying moment in her life so that she can kind of have a show and tell and tell Nancy what's going on. <laughs> you want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. And as we were watching, you know, uh, the second death, the boyfriend... In when the, the jail cell? Yeah, in the jail cell. When that happened, I was thinking, man, this is only the second death in the whole thing and, and at the time I, I i didn't remember glenn uh getting killed later on I'm like this you know for a slasher film the body count here is really low it's i mean it, it's low. only three which you know uh three people murdered is nothing to you know <laughs> bat an eye at <laughs> right but, um, but still but as far as the slasher genre is concerned that's relatively mild no i mean it's not like you know a lot of movies today where you sort of feel like there there's like a quota you know yeah. every five pages there's got to be somebody dying in some yeah. way here you really only have four people you're focusing on um, and then the parents as ancillary characters, and three of them die. 
and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. the mother dies. You know, toward the end. You know, you brought up that murder. That was kind of interesting because I'm trying to. I'm watching this, and I'm sort of trying to figure out the rules in a way. Kind of trying to remind myself of the coherency. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting. Like, okay, something can happen in the dream, and then they'll wake up, and it's happened to them in real life, right? right. So, like, she burns herself um, on the dream. She wakes up, she's burned. Somebody gets sort of cut or slashed in the dream. They wake up, and they're cut, too. Or even even their clothes are cut, yeah. you know? But And so you, you can see that happening, but the sense is that this stuff sort of has to happen in the dream, and it only kind of manifests itself in the real world in that way when they wake up. But then you have that scene where the hanging, uh-huh. where it's like in the real world... That sheet of paper, that sheet, uh, presumably he's dreaming it, right? Yeah, right. But it's it's actually manifesting itself in the real world to the point where the sheet is wrapping around his neck, it's dragging him across the room, it's pulling him up, and it's tying itself up to the top. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Did that seem to you like, like a little know. inconsistent with sort of what I would imagine the rules to be of sort of what happens in the dream and what happens in reality and how they can reflect each other. Being familiar with uh, the whole series, I think that it does seem a little bit odd, you know, that that scene in particular. But looking at it as a standalone film, you know, if I wasn't familiar with the whole thing, that's one of the things that I think is so genius about, you know, he takes this kind of standard formula of the slasher, you know, uh, high school kids being stalked by some ominous presence, whatever. But by throwing it into the realm of dreams, he opens up the realm of possibilities for anything. Anything can happen. Um, So I didn't question it all that much. I mean, now that, you know, if we want to sit and talk about it, (laughs) it, it may seem like kind of a stretch, but if you give yourself over to that, that notion that really kind of anything is possible, that's I, true. Yeah, it kind of prevents you from picking the movie apart too. Much. Right, it really does. You're right. Yeah, and that's kind of what's so terrifying about it too is this idea. I mean, we all dream. We dream every night, you know, whether we remember them or not. Something's going on. Yeah. We've all had nightmares. We can all kind of, and we've probably all had that experience once or twice where you you think something's real and it turns out to be a dream, and you you know you wake up. Um, it's just a really neat world to be playing between, you know, for a for a horror movie and. I really believe he's the first person to really do that in horror. Am I wrong? You know, I can remember a movie, I want to say Dreamscape, is that what it was oh, called? Oh, that's, that's correct. With, and that uh, came before this. Dennis Quaid, I think, was in yep, that film. Yep. Um, and and they that was more of a, a psychological bent where scientists were kind of syncing up with people and entering into their dreams to kind of do therapeutic things. And there was kind of a, you know, it was a horror film too, and there was a nightmarish thing going on there. I think that was before. But as far as I can remember, that was the only one that had really kind of explored this to this nature. And, and, and you're right. You know, it's really relatable. We've all had nightmares. We've all had dreams and and sleep is something that you can't escape you know you can stay awake for as as long as you know you physically can keep your eyes open but eventually it's going to catch up to you there's no escape mm-hmm. uh, and i think that that you know adds to kind of the ominous nature of of the whole situation uh, yeah there's no escape from freddie because you're going to sleep at some point right and it's so funny how she goes through all these processes to stay awake yeah she's got the stay awake pills right she's got the no dose pills she's got the the secret coffee pot under the secret bed. coffee pot was hilarious uh-huh. there's there are these little moments of like comedy in there which i think are kind of cute that he entered i i thought that was one of those funny moments where the mother comes in to, to pat nancy down good night um nancy's eyes are closed she's pretending she's sleeping and her mom is like quietly collecting the <laughs> cup and this coffee cup 
and this coffee pot and her no dose pills go yeah. in the pot and she walks out and Nancy just wakes up immediately goes down pulls out this plugged in yeah turned fully on. turned yeah. on coffee pot <clears throat> and sets it on the top <laughs> yeah and, and I think Nancy at one point says that she uh, has been awake for for seven full days that she she read somewhere that the record was eleven now I'm no scientist but. I'm thinking that seven days with no sleep is is probably not a healthy thing. Um, But, you know, that also kind of adds to the mystique. You know, all along the way, people are kind of telling Nancy she's crazy. She starts to question it herself. I I guess as a first-time viewer, some people might be wondering, is this really going on? Is something really happening? Or is this girl just losing it? Is this how she's processing these tragic losses of her friends? That's true. At some level... You wonder, I think you wonder, is it all a dream? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Is it is it a dream from the beginning to end? And I know that's one direction that, that they talked about taking it by the end. But then again, the fact that it manifests itself so physically in the real world, right. you know, is what con- continually shocks you out of that sort of feeling, you know, that, oh, no, this is actually happening. This is really real. Right. What I think is kind of not as believable is sort of the parents' reactions throughout all this. Well, we talked about this last week. I don't know if, if Craven himself had mommy-daddy issues, but the parents in People Under the Stairs that we looked at last week, the parents in in this film, not really role models as, as far as parenting <laughs> is concerned. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on there. Maybe that's typical teenage perspective of your parents, that they just have no idea what's going on. They're off in their own little world. There's no way they could relate to you. So well, maybe that's kind of a universal thing. I don't know. Well, yeah, and then this one almost even sets them against the kids. I mean, I'm thinking about when Na- when the first murder happens of Tina. Uh, and of course it happens when Nancy's over at Tina's house. And she walks in and they discover the body. And it, actually, Craven's really good about just jumping into the story and getting as much information as possible in such a short period of time. Yeah. Like through that whole sequence, what does she do? They immediately, the next scene is at the police station and we see the police chief um, and he comes in and he says, what was she doing over there? And, you know, somebody says something about Tina, and he says, no, I mean you. And he turns and looks at Nancy, and instantly you realize, oh, that's her dad. dad." And then he turns and he looks at the mother. All right, look, I don't want to get into this now. God knows you need time. But I sure would like to know what the hell you were doing shacking up with three other kids in the middle of the night, especially a lunatic delinquent like Lane. Rod is not a lunatic, Dad. You have a sane explanation for what he did? And there's a look there, and he starts accusing her, like, what was she doing over there? Right. And immediately you you surmise, okay, they're not together, they're clearly divorced, there's clearly some tension between mom and dad here. And it, it's so neat how that scene just does that with, with just a few lines yeah. in about 20 seconds. Right. But, but, but the thing is, here's what they do. They just sort of start berating her, yeah. you know? What were you doing over there? What are you doing? You killed this guy. And, and instead of, like, this... <laughs> I'm sorry, honey, are you okay? Yeah. You just witnessed this terrible trauma? Your really good friend just died? <laughs> maybe, Brutally. You maybe know. we should, you know, set aside for a moment the fact that you, uh, you know, neglected your curfew and lied to us and take care of that matter. They don't care. Well, yeah, and, and apart from that, I mean, over the course of time, as as she's realizing more about what's going as Nancy's realizing more about what's going on, it's not like she's not communicating this to her parents. You know, mm. she's telling them exactly what's going on, and they know. You know, they know the backstory. They know she's not just making this up, but they let her go on thinking that she's crazy, that she's just losing her mind, yeah. um, until, you know, the, the last 
you know, the introduction to the last act of the film when the mom finally says, oh, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, there was this child killer and we killed him, but he's gone now, you know. So don't worry. Don't worry about don't it. Don't worry about it. Just, uh, you know, everything's fine. <laughs> Clearly this is not really related to what's going on. Yeah. He can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. By the way, in our basement, um, I have a souvenir. Yeah, right. And I kept it. We burned him alive, but I... I sifted through the rubble and found this glove just so that I would have the opportunity to share this with you later. Nice bonding moment, mother-daughter moment. You know what's funny? Mm -hmm. It was actually kind of an interesting... Um, I was getting a little deja vu with the people under the stairs because you remember that point um, when she's sort of... I think it was kind of a turning point in the movie where um, Roach has um, the main um, guy in a little boiler, kind of uh -huh. like a little furnace, remember? Uh -huh. um, and he takes him in there, and that's when he pulls out this sort of rag-wrapped yeah. book, right, that he that's hands right. him and says, and then here's the way out. I had forgotten about it that. It was just like the same shot, really, you know? She goes downstairs, she pulls out this rag-wrapped claw, claw, and that, that's sort of the turning point of the film. Yeah, we talked about cravenisms last week, and, you know, you can see definite ties between People Under the Stairs and, and Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, you've got the creepy boiler room, uh, the scene that you just described, Described. Just the general atmosphere is is very similar, and yeah, it's just not as madcap as right. uh, people under the stairs was. Oh, and the one I was going for, you know, we talked last week about how Home Alone really kind of seemed to rip off yes. a lot of uh, what was going on there. We've got the same thing in the final act of Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, Nancy all of a sudden she checks a book out from the library, I guess, about uh, <laughs> in the days survivalists. The <laughs> yeah, and uh, at the very end of the film, leading right up into the final scene, she she calls her dad and says, you know, Dad, please come over in exactly 20 minutes. I'm going to go get this guy and bring him out of my dream. And then we get a nice montage of her setting up these elaborate <laughs> kill devices in her house. Um, like she's been doing it forever. Right, yeah. <laughs> like you said, uh, maybe she did a test run before this. Sure, yeah. She, she's got a lot accomplished here in 20 minutes. <laughs> but very effective. I mean, it, it, it works. It was, but you're right. It's a very Home Alone type deal, which is exactly what we saw in People Under the Stairs, which is really kind of funny when you think about it. Actually, it reminded me a little bit, too, of Phantasm. Have you ever seen... Do you, you remember Phantasm? Yeah. It's been a long time, but yeah. The, the way the kid gets out of the room, he does sort of this elaborate... There's a, sort of this scene where he just sits there and starts to put together a, a shotgun shell with a pin and a hammer and t duct tapes it all together. It's just sort of stuff he's all kind of found in his um, in his uh, desk and then uses that to hit the door to, <laughs> to get the lock open, you know, to escape. Yeah, these characters are far more resourceful than I would be in these circumstances. Well, that was <clears throat> the neat thing about Nancy, period. Like I, like we were saying, she's not she's not sort of the run-and-hide final girl. Yeah. She's not the, I'm, I'm lasting not so much because of my wits, but because I, I'm a virgin, and because I can r outrun and outlast, and I'm maybe a little more cautious than everybody else. I mean, she's taking agency here, you yeah. know? And I don't know what it is about Heather Langenkamp. I just really like her. You know, I, I would never go so far to say is that she, she gives an outstanding acting performance in this mm -hmm. film. There are some other uh, actors. Uh, <laughs> like the mother? <laughs> yeah. Um, Who definitely uh, does not give an outstanding performance. Right, right. Her name, uh, the mom's name was uh, Ronnie Blakely. And I've read, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated with, with horror movies in general. So I read up as much as I can. And there's actually a, a documentary. I think it's called Never Sleep Again, mm -hmm. uh, The Nightmare on Elm Street Legacy or 
or something. And, I've heard of that. Um, it's it's long. I think it's like three hours long, and it's really extensive. It covers the whole series, but they kind of give you a lot of just neat little trivia things. Uh, I, I guess Ronnie Blakely, who played the mother, was just really difficult to work with, um, and they and I guess Craven really kind of butted heads with her. Um, one of the anecdotes that they said was that uh, she would come in for makeup every day, and she would get her makeup put on, but as soon as it would, as soon as the makeup people would leave, she would immediately take it all off and reapply her own makeup. Well, no wonder her makeup <clears throat> was so horrible. <laughs> right? Wasn't it terrible? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was totally a vanity thing, you know. I, I, I've never seen her in anything else. Apparently, she had had a big role in a movie prior to this, so I guess she must have thought she was something. Oh, jeez, um, it was horrible. Every, every, every line she was delivering was like deliberate and almost. I mean, over-expressive, and she's moving her head, and it was like this sort of prima donna. I mean, you, you could almost see it right through there. I've got something better. I'm going to get her some help. Yeah, and, and you can tell in her makeup, she almost looks, you know, like a cadaver. You know, it's a this it's thick shiny. pancake, shiny makeup. Oh, my God. Um, but Heather Langenkamp, you know, I I knew her. I think, you know, I don't know if this came before or after Nightmare, but she was on a sitcom, uh, a very family sitcom, Just the Ten of Us. Do you remember this show? I do. It was a it was a spinoff of... Um, You're right. Of uh, that, the, oh, gosh, Growing Pains. Uh-huh. A spinoff of Growing Pains. And, and Heather Langenkamp played one of, I think, six or seven daughters in this large family and she was the uber conservative very religious daughter and so I knew her from that so I was already a fan and so then and like I said the movie may have come before but not for me you know I saw the movie afterwards and so I really liked her Uh, I thought that she was believable I mean she seemed Mm. if her acting wasn't amazing I mean she seemed like a girl you would know. She she wasn't as flat of a character as some of these typical final girls are. Yes. No, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. And and the fact that she looks plain. Yeah. You know, she's got she's those... She's a pretty girl, but she's, she's believable. Pretty... She's, she's a girl next door kind of look. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sort of in contrast to Tina, who's sort of the blonde and maybe a little more attractive, uh, yeah. you know, in that way. She looked dumbfounded a lot. There was, and I think a lot of it too had to do with the pacing of the performances, you know? Interestingly enough, I mean, he really takes his time. And in this case, I was really getting flashes back to the original Last House on the left. Mm -hmm. I was getting flashes back to the domestic scenes when, um, toward the end of the film, when the killers end up at the the parents' um, house of the girl. And I remember how slow-paced those were, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And it, it was almost just like somebody set up a camera in the corner of the room and was recording this conversation as it happened. And I looked at, and, and I was getting those feelings like these conversations between um, Heather and her mom in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. They, they were long. They were very believable dialogue, yeah. you know? At the same time, her mom's trying to hide her alcoholism, <laughs> you know? Almost <laughs> another, well. bit, another bit of comedy there, yeah. I thought, too. Yeah. But part of that also was just the ineffective performance of the mother yeah but yeah that that just stretches out and it's interesting because the mother's sort of hiding the alcohol and they're having their talk which gets more and more heated i don't think the camera cuts away at all i i'm if i recall correctly it seemed like it was it probably wasn't but it seemed it had the effect of being done in all one whole take right um and and it really kind of goes the roller coaster where she comes down and mom's like how are you doing and she's like i'm fine she's like you're not sleeping I, i know i'm not sleeping and then she pulls out the the hat that she's pulled uh, from the dream and says, I know his name, Mom. It's Fred Krueger, right. you know, and you know more about this than I do. And she kind of uh, goes back and forth. And then she makes a comment about the alcohol, you know? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm kind of watching the scene. I'm wondering, 
I mean, she's not pointing out the alcohol. Does she yeah. know her mom's hiding it? I mean, it looks obvious to me, but maybe she's got other stuff in her mind, but yet it's later on. Maybe if that bottle would have some more answers or whatever she says. Yeah, well, it uh, it becomes almost a, a role reversal. You know, by the end of the film, the mom is is very much the one who needs coddling and needs yes. protected. And in mm-hmm. fact, Nancy, you know, uh, you know, tucks her mother into bed and, and kind of eases her off to sleep before she, Nancy, has to go into this final battle. I think it, it kind of sets it up um, that she's on her own uh, and I think that that adds to the tension you know you 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 feel the the pressure that there's there's helps not coming from the outside well that's true you know, her, her mom is uh, passed out drunk in the bedroom her dad is across the street and uh, the watchman that her dad has set up apparently thinks that there's nothing particularly out of the ordinary about a teenage girl breaking out windows and screaming for help Especially considering there was a murder not across less than street, twenty minutes sure. earlier yeah. across the street, uh, sure. So she's you know, it's it comes down to it's it's her facing the boogeyman. It's her facing her fear and, and that's uh, what she comes to realize throughout the course of the movie that she has to do. Some might argue that the film is actually kind of anticlimactic in the final battle because mm-hmm. you've got Freddie chasing this girl around throughout this whole movie and there's intense threat of, of violence and, and you know disfigurement and then at the end to defeat him all she has to do is turn her back and uh, take his power away. Yeah, it's a really weird, and I'm still not sure I've unpacked it, you know? It's just a very ambiguous, kind of strange ending. I mean, when you talk about, like, what, what I was saying earlier about rules being broken, um, okay, so she pulls him into the into the real world from her dream by grabbing onto him and by being woken up at that particular time, and then takes him through this house where he's got all the, where she has all the booby traps, which are actually affecting him, yeah. you know, like they'd affect a real person. Takes him downstairs, you know, throws the fire on him. Deja vu for this poor guy, you know. And she runs up the stairs, and, and they have that whole incredible stunt sequence uh, on the staircase, which I I believe the stuntman actually won an award for. That yeah, year. yeah, he did. And I read, I, I, would, I had had in my mind that it was all in one shot, which obviously it wasn't. But uh, I guess they did that whole sequence in one take. I mean, that guy was lit up one time, and they did that entire sequence. And, and you're right, he won... Uh, stunt of the year, I think, uh, for that. And it, it is very impressive. It's, I mean, to, to be on fire that long, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Um, he, <laughs> he didn't come away from that with burns, <laughs> looking like Freddy, who knows. You know, so anyway, so that happens. Um, the dad uh, across the street finally <laughs> they've gotten her his attention. He breaks in with his buddies. They turn around. He's not on the stairs. He's done a loop around them apparently, and he's climbed up the stairs. And he's jumped on her mother's bed, mm-hmm. and he's now after the mother. And the first thing I thought of was, okay, so so he's on the bed, he's getting the mother, they break into the room, they see this happen, father throws um, the blanket over to douse it, and when yeah. he pulls the blanket away, now it's kind of supernatural, right. weird again. Yeah, I see what you're saying about the rules, there is kind of a gray area, I mean, it's not... Uh, strictly, you know, free for all in the dream world, and then the the constraints of reality in in the real world. I mean, when when Freddie gets pulled over, um, there's still a supernatural element to it, and I and I don't really know how to. And I guess it's just troubling to me because how can the hammers and the trip wires and the fire and stuff affect him when he can sort of disappear into the bed over the charred corpse of the mother, and that just all kind of goes in there. It just then, then you really wonder what is going on. Is this a dream? Yeah. You know, and that was when that starts to come into play. But then I thought, well, maybe it's because the mother's asleep, 
all right, she's passed out, maybe she's having this dream, and it's sort of a reverse effect right. where she... She's kind of a conduit to get him back back into, into the, the dream other, world, sure. and then you know, kind of like we've seen with everything else, you know, the weirdness of the dream world can be reflected in the in the real world right. in, in that sense. If that person is dreaming their death, you know, <laughs> essentially. But then, of course, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> and and uh, after witnessing what has to be the strangest thing anybody has ever seen, the her policeman father and uh, and her just walks around. She's like, "I need a moment, Dad," yeah. or something. He's like. <laughs> Okay, all right, we'll leave the room. Uh, she closes the door behind her, and suddenly Freddy comes up out of the bed. And that's the thing. Okay, so I guess he's come back into the real world again? Who knows? Her yeah. back's on him, but now she knows, just like the Balinese do, that if you know that they're not real, they're, they don't have power over you anymore. And that's when he lunges at her and just sort of disappears into nothingness. You die. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. Yeah, you know, I, and I think <laughs> we're probably being over-analytical. Yeah. Uh, and as as the series went on, you know, they played with these rules. They changed the rules yeah. back and forth all the time. I, I don't think that anything is necessarily set in stone. I think you just kind of have to roll with it, which I'm willing to do. The image at the end uh, when when the, the dad pulls the blanket off um, and Freddy has now disappeared, but it's just kind of this glowing ethereal pit where uh, the skeleton of the mother is slowly descending. That's worth it to me to get, to get over <laughs> to get over uh, Fair enough. the reality of, of what's going on, you know, that image. And that's another thing, you know, you said this kind of movie probably wouldn't be made, at least not in the same way. I think you're absolutely right. The, the I don't think the ending would ever fly today, especially the turning your back to defeat the big monster. You know, that's, uh, I, I like the concept of it. I think it's a really interesting concept, and I think that it, there's a an actual message there. You know, if you don't give your fears power over you, then they really don't have power over you. And I like that message, but I don't think it would fly today. We would need a, a much bigger final battle. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a matrixy thing. Like, if you can tr- convince and trick your mind not to be afraid because right. it's all an illusion, then suddenly, you know, it doesn't have that power over you. Yeah, it's, it's almost akin to the... Um, it was all a dream kind of ending. You know, yeah. we don't give that one. We, we've seen it once, maybe twice. We'll give it something. But, you know, nowadays, that seems like a cop-out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you can see, I mean, you can see the age of the film. A lot of that, you know, is, is just with the practical effects. But, again, maybe it's just my nostalgia. But I so appreciate those things. You know, we've, we've gotten to where we're so used to uh, CGI. And when CGI first came around, I think we were all so awed by, oh, look how real it looks. They can really make that look real. Yeah, The um, Abyss and, and uh, Terminator 2 and yeah, those kind of things yeah. were... And now it's it's so common, we see it so often that I don't know if, if uh, it's just a, a matter of, of budget constraints or laziness. You know, a lot of the time CGI looks far less real than some of these practical effects. I mean, these practical effects don't necessarily look realistic in the way that if they were happening in the real world, but because they are practical, there's a realism to them there is. that I think is lacking in uh, in CGI. Like, like I said, you know, when he cuts off his fingers there in the beginning, I mean, it's clearly... 
there's you know there's a hose in there it's 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 pumping something out and it's doing it in spurts i mean you can you can imagine the mechanism working underneath. Yeah. Uh, same thing with uh, the first scene where we really get a full shot of, of Freddy. It's it's in silhouette, but he's walking down the alley with his arms far, you know, overextended, way stretched out. I mean, you can tell that there's a practical effect going on there. Obviously, you can't see the two guys on either side with fishing poles, you know, holding up the arms, but it seems more grounded in reality somehow, and, and I feel like that's lacking in a lot of pictures. Today. Well, yeah, and I mean, this is something horror aficionados argue about all the time, right? You know, what's yeah. better, or movie movie people in particular. But it also, the, having the practical effects, I think kind of forces a certain filmmaking aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't linger too long right. on that scene lest you see the wires, or lest it starts to look a little cheesy yeah. or fake. And so... You you know, that scene with him and his arms outstretched coming towards her in my mind's eye was much longer and much more terrifying than actually it is. Absolutely. It's a pretty quick shot of him. It's a close-up shot of, of you know, him sparking up, uh, you know, scraping his claws across the walls there. And then, you know, it's a shot of her running away, and then you sort of see him back to chasing her. Um it allows some space in your head, mm-hmm. you know, to fill in the gaps. Another spot where they had that too um, is when she's out exploring. She uh, tries to get Glenn to wake her up, and of course he falls asleep. But she goes out to the jail, and she's looking in the window and sees, uh, you know, the guy uh, Freddie coming in to Rod's cell. cell. Yeah. And then when she turns around, she again has a vision of Tina, uh-huh. and there's that close-up shot on Tina's mouth where a, was a, a centipede, centipede comes out of his her mouth. And then the next shot is a shot of just, it looks like slimy slugs or snakes just yeah. sort of sli- sliggering away back w- at her feet. Uh-huh. But the effect is that she's sort of dissolved yeah. into, um, you know, cr- insects and, and creatures. Mm-hmm. But they never showed her dissolving into these insects right. and creatures. But your mind sort of fills it in in a sense that makes it a little less cheesy than it would have been if we'd gotten this nice long shot of her slowly dissolving into insects and creatures. Yeah, you know? I agree. I, I wonder how young people who are so accustomed to the effects of today, you know, how they would respond to this. I still find this to be a really effectively scary movie. Mm-hmm. Um, despite, you know, some of those issues. To me, I can only imagine that this for me is like the classic MGM monsters were like for our parents and our grandparents. You know, Freddy has really established himself kind of in that canon of classic movie monsters. Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein. Um, And now, you know, uh, we've got some more contemporary, you know, it shows our age, but uh, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, uh, they've really established themselves. And, you know, the the franchise ended in, what, 96, 97? Yeah. Seven? Something like that? Quite but, a ways ago, yeah, actually. But, but kids still know who Freddy Krueger is. Uh, they may never have seen the movies, but uh, he's still very much uh, a horror icon. Well, I think that's that says something, you know, that says something about Craven's vision. It says something about the longevity of the movies. It's, it's pretty, it was great, and I'm with you. Uh, I thought it was a scary movie still today um i don't think it would have been i think it would have been even much more fast-paced if it had been done today Mm -hmm. but sort of the slowness of discovering if i had been seeing this for the first time it would have been especially suspenseful trying to figure out are they dreaming right now are they not what's going on um, at any particular time and is nancy going to be able to stay away are her friends going to be able to stay away yeah it's 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 one of my favorites and and, you know another thing we were talking about leaving things to the imagination uh 
after this film, Freddie really became the face of the franchise. And, you know, his, you know, there were the big uh, life-size cutouts of him in the video stores. You know, he featured very prominently on the front of every cover, you know, from the second one on. But in this one, you really don't even get to see very much of him. I mean, he doesn't get very much screen time, and when you do see him, he's very much in shadows. I mean, you get some uh, angles of his face, and you kind of can see some of uh, the the makeup design and whatnot, um, but he's really kept very much in the dark. So he's more of an ominous presence as opposed to something that you know we as an audience are familiar with and kind of know what to expect, and um, I think that that probably was very effective uh, for first-time viewers. Yeah, and, uh, and now he's in your face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go to part three, part four, especially part five you know it, it, it's it's definitely he's cemented himself he's able to step out of the shadows and kind of be crazy yeah and i like those movies you know i don't want to i don't want to talk trash about those movies i enjoy them oh um, yeah i think uh you know there are some there are better entries in the franchise than others you know uh, my uh, part three i think is amazing dream warriors i think is amazing and then there are some some duds part two freddy's revenge i didn't think was particularly no that great um and then five uh, was weird with yeah, the, was the, that the dream, the dream child? child the dream child yeah i kind of like four four i have four a is good special part uh, dream master i think was that one and then yeah. freddy's dead didn't really do it for me no. but um it was almost a, a, an appropriate setup then for New Nightmare. Yes. Uh, you needed Freddy to kind of become that joke so that he could come back and, and really scare the shit out of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way of yeah. putting it. You know, and, and I think that happens to every horror icon, right? First you have Dracula and you have Frankenstein, these people, and eventually you got the monster mash. Right. Right? Yeah, you got Laurel and Hardy meet Frankenstein and whatnot. So he's definitely, uh, it's proof positive, cemented himself in the canon there. Well, Craig, what do you what do you want to see next week? Man, I don't know. You got any ideas? Have you ever seen Deadly Friend? I have not. I have not either. Nice. So maybe we'll keep the Craven thing going. Let's do it. Let's do it for one more week at least. Right. I've never seen it. I would love to see it. Okay. All right. So catch us next week on Two Guys in a Chainsaw. We're going to watch Deadly Friend. Once again, this has been Todd. This is Craig. If you like this podcast, please spread the word. Uh, like us on Facebook. Check out our page. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.